Hello and welcome to the podcast, Natalie Nahai In Conversation, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me and some wonderful guests as we explore how we might reimagine humanity in the face of accelerating technological advancement, ecological disruption and systemic change. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalienahai.com forward slash in conversation. And for additional books and resources, check out natalienahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In today's conversation, I speak with Julia Gentile, fellow-in-law at London School of Economics. Specialising in research on EU constitutional law, AI regulation, and the use of AI in justice systems, Julia holds a PhD and an LLM from King's College London and has received scholarships and grants to fund her research from the EU Commission, the Max Planck Institute of European Procedural Law, and the Centre of European Law at KCL. Having co-edited three books and authored more than 30 scientific publications, Julia's academic work has been cited, among others, by the UK Parliament, Advocates General at the CJEU, the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, the European Banking Authority, and the Slovenian Constitutional Court. An Italian qualified lawyer who worked at the chambers of Judge Rossi at the CJEU and at the M&A Department of Clifford Chance Milan, Julia has provided expert evidence to the UK Parliament on the UK system of fundamental rights protection and digital regulation, and to the EU Commission on Disabled People's Political Rights and E-Voting Procedures. I first came across Julia's work through a fascinating, thought-provoking article she co-wrote with Giovanni de Gregorio, exploring the issues arising from the digitisation of justice, which I wrote about on LinkedIn a few months ago. And since law is an area which affects all of our lives, I wanted to invite her here to speak with us about how AI may transform the ways in which we interact with and are governed by the law, and how we might ensure that these changes respect our rights and values towards a more flourishing future for all. And a special shout out here to Stephanie Collinson, my assistant, who introduced me to Julia's work. Thank you so much. Julia, it's nice to be in conversation with you. Where are you uh, calling in from today? Hi, Natalie. Great, great to be here. And uh, I'm calling in from London, the rainy London. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to be chatting with you. And um, just before our call, I was going back over some of the articles that you've written on the LSE blog, the ChatGBT one about how it's changing the ways in which we relate to and conceive of law. And then the more recent one, which I'll also link to in the show notes about the digitization of the justice system. But before we get to all that juicy stuff, I want to ask you the question that I always open these conversations with. And that's what do you think is going on in the global human psyche right now? Very great question, Natalie. Um, It's... um... It's a complex uh, matter, and I think that clearly there are um, some profound changes that are taking place that um, are based on a on a conflict, I think, between, so to say, different ways of, of approaching uh, life. Um, I don't know what the outcome will be of this transformative um, journey, but but clearly I think we're experiencing a, a crisis of traditional ways of uh, of looking at society, of looking at uh, what's the role of the individual in the society. Uh, and I think AI um, and its impact uh, on the society is, is really playing into that as well. Mm-hmm. So from your perspective in the world of law, how do you see the general context unfolding in response to AI technology algorithms? Like what are the key things that you've noticed that you think people should be aware of? I think that AI um, is having already a profound um, influence on uh, our everyday lives as well as on uh, regulators, uh, the market and the law in itself. Um, AI has enormous potential uh, is uh, putting the um, in a way the, the input and the abilities of humans in into perspective because clearly AI 
can in some cases even outperform um, humans. So inevitably, this uh, creates uh, uh, reflections, but also to a certain extent, uh, a crisis, let's say, of, of some dogma, some um, uh, mantras that uh, have governed uh, our societies, as well as the, the law, in a way. Mm-hmm. But um, how the law is responding to these challenges, I think that thus far we haven't seen a, a real strong and effective response uh, and um, this is, of course, a choice of regulators in the sense that regulators could decide to act in a more um, Herculean way, we could say, in a more effective and uh, also reactive way to the technology. Uh, and this, of course, tells something about um, how AI could shape uh, the markets, could shape our lives. And in itself, it can, it can be... Um, for certain aspects, also quite um, problematic in my view. So I think that, in essence, to summarize, the law uh, hasn't done uh, uh, what uh, it should be doing in, in my, um, from my perspective. And is it also because it's a bit slower to keep up the fact that there are so many different procedural elements that make lawmaking and the changing of laws kind of go through due procedure? Or is it something else? Are there various factors at play? And that's that's a brilliant question in the sense that you touch upon, I think, two um, of the sides of the law. One of them, of course, is, is is procedures in the sense that the law is grounded in procedures, which means that there should be, of course, two debate. There are, in many cases, also different readings for the different legislators, both at the national and international level. And the different readings, of course, can uh, inevitably also impact the speed at which the uh, legislation is adopted, mm. but I think that uh, what we're facing here is a more is a more fundamental challenge, which is a challenge of values and therefore a political challenge in the sense that uh, there is um, uh, quite a um, I would say controversy surrounding what the role of AI should be in society, yeah. <laughs> uh, which um, doesn't necessarily find agreement, of course, of uh, civil society in particular from the perspective of um, AI-driven companies who, mm. who, of course, see uh, regulation as an obstacle for, for innovation. And on the other side, of course, we may have regulators who are highly um, influenced as well by these views because inevitably um, the AI market has a a huge uh, potential, a significant uh, potential from the perspective of expansion of markets as well as um, economic growth and wealth. Mm. So inevitably what what we're witnessing, in my view, in some jurisdictions is uh, a tension between um, so to say, favoring innovation and expanding the AI market uh, versus, of course, some very tangible and concrete concerns and challenges that have emerged um, in the last years when it comes to AI. And it seems to me that the balance is tilting in favor of innovation uh, and market concerns over um, very uh, essential <laughs> um I would say problematic aspects of AI from the perspective of individual rights and uh, and protection for the more vulnerable. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I, I remember when we well when we had a chat before this this conversation and in a few other conversations I've had with other folks, this question of the kind of it's the framing of a battle between innovation and regulation, which I fundamentally disagree with. Which is that innovation doesn't have to sit within a context where there are no constraints. That's the whole point of innovation. It's kind of coming up against constraints, finding a new way through, and being creative and imaginative. And if we think about things like regulation uh, creating greater safety in the car industry, in flying, like that, sometimes these constraints create innovations which are much better, that far surpass the innovations that might otherwise have come about and at much less cost than if people had been able to just go and just cause damage, you know, lives lost, etc. So, like, can you speak a bit to that? Because it's such a weird framing that we go in this very binary approach where actually I think we're missing um, the richer picture. 
I think that uh, it's a very nice way of putting it in the sense that it's a matter also of uh, nuances and balance in the sense that, as you rightly said, um, not everything is black and white <laughs> and uh, regulation has never, be- has never been uh, black or white because the law is not black and white. The law uh, is really, in a way, the channeling through um, words that uh, shape uh, behavior in the society when it comes to individuals, when it comes to um, operators, when it comes to companies, when it comes even to public bodies to uh, achieve of course, certain objectives. And inevitably, the objectives uh, are uh, polycentric uh, because the society in itself embodies different values, different interests. So um, when we talk about uh, um, AI uh, regulation as opposed to innovation, I think we're missing a big part of the story. And in a way, it's it's a narrative that um, uh, is, it lacks nuances, lacks also... Um, uh, in a way, a uh, balance and is not reflective of what the law does. It's, it is true, of course, that the law, um, can put, um, uh, guardrails, but these guardrails are not, uh, intrinsically contrary to innovation. So you gave us uh, very good examples of, um, uh, tools, but even one can say uh, household items. Think about um, washing machines or um, uh, or even other products and um, means of transport. Think about trains. Think about uh, cars, right? And the fact that the uh, producers of these uh, items of of these tools need to um, ensure some safety um, standards doesn't mean, nonetheless, that there cannot be any innovation. So I think that, again, um, this very, um, uh, one can say, bipolar, almost um, uh, uh, bidimensional um, narrative, either innovation or regulation, I think is really missing the bigger picture. I think the other thing that also comes to my mind is the fact that when we're thinking about physical objects, the harms are much more easy to point out, right? So like when we're thinking about AI, a lot of the harms that we're talking about are not visible in a tangible way to the naked eye. We're talking about potentially encroachments on people's privacy, on their rights. Maybe if we're talking about the inbuilt biases and prejudices, we're talking about also discriminatory uh, kind of experiences for people where they don't necessarily know that they're being discriminated against. There's no recourse to change that. What are some of the biggest issues you see in terms of the harms that not regulating AI could could kind of like permit to happen? I think that the um, the harms in a way are becoming uh, even more evident, um, even I would say uh, uh, among the, the public, among the society at large, in the sense that it's true that many of them are intangible. When you think about privacy, Traditionally, uh, so to say, we uh, think about uh, the state uh, having a duty to protect uh, our private sphere, our private life uh, from um, interferences, undue interferences. Um, and, and therefore, in a way, we conceptualize privacy from the state. But I think that uh, the emergence of uh, powerful social media and platforms has shown that Privacy can be um, attacked also by private actors, not necessarily only by the state. So yeah. um, the, the sensitivity is slowly uh, changing. But having said that, I think that there are some areas in which, having talked to many students, but also uh, many people at the conferences, at the, event, uh, the events that I've been uh, speaking at, what, uh, what emerges is that, um, for example, a serious concern for um, the population, for for workers in particular, is how AI could replace them. Mm. And these these worries are really coming up in in all fields. Uh, This is a very transversal, um, I think, concern that um, should should ring uh, uh, an alarm for all of us, should should really uh, be... Uh, a signal that um, something 
from a regulatory perspective should be done. Yeah. And the inaction of um, regulators from this perspective uh, is starting uh, generating some 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 serious um, uh, anxiety mm. among among workers. So this is clearly an area where, uh, uh, based on my uh, my interactions as well as my research, we see that um, the harm is, is becoming more and more tangible. And I think it's concreti- concretizing itself also uh, through some very powerful um, actions. Think about the strike that actors in, in Hollywood uh, have been engaging uh, 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 in, uh, whereby we see that um, uh, actors are becoming increasingly concerned that their image could be simply uh, scanned and then uh, adapted for different uh, movies, for different uh, um, productions yeah. without the human touch. Mm. Uh, and this is, I think, a very powerful um, example of how um, AI is becoming a concern for, for society. And... Uh, of course, I mean, this is a concern that has been voiced also by other types of workers, not necessarily Hollywood actors. <laughs> and um, I think that point being that um, no matter what the source is, so to say, of uh, uh, of the concern and how it can be voiced and uh, put to the attention of the regulators, I think that this is, um, this is a, a welcome development in the sense that mm-hmm. perhaps there could be a spillover effect where... Um, some some workers that may be more powerful and also more more vocal than others can nonetheless also help to voice also other uh, types of workers' concerns in this area. Thinking about where to go on the on next from this this point because there's so many things to to explore here. I was listening to various conversations around. Um, I think it was Nate Hagen's and Daniel Schmachtenberger on the Great Simplification. I think it was them. And one of the things that was raised was, again, back to your point around values and how the AI and technology question really isn't so much a technology question per se, but a societal, civilizational, and actually I think it is a civilizational question. I mean, it scales up that widely. And also planetarily, if you want to think about the ecological impacts and cost, um, which are currently being written off as externalities, which makes no sense because it's not external to our living planet. So it's like, well, anyway... (laughs) But the point that they were making was about values and societal approaches or country-based approaches to AI and what could potentially happen. And I wonder if this will happen. We've seen this in China already, is that certain uses of AI in certain countries have already been regulated for. And so you'll, you'll potentially end up in a situation where certain territories, countries, nation states will have a set of regulations that are more or less oriented towards the flourishing of their society, towards a stable society where perhaps, for example, GDP is compromised a bit because obviously if you have um, short-term wins where companies can just outsource everything to AI and cut their costs and not employ humans, whatever the industry, you can end up with a spike in short-term profits but then massive unemployment and all sorts of social problems versus countries that maybe slow that down or potentially even go a degrowth sort of route where they prioritise people being employed, having a set of regulations that enable folks to have dignified, full lives, and how those countries are likely to be better places to live and therefore more resilient and economically and politically more stable than the countries that take the other route. And obviously at the moment this is kind of in the realm of the imaginal, like fantasizing some particular outcomes. But mm-hmm. I wonder what your thoughts are around which countries or regions, for instance, the EU versus the US, are taking perhaps a more social values-driven approach to the role that, that law can take in, in creating one or the other reality. Like, where's the good stuff happening? Do you see <laughs> places where there's a cause for optimism? Uh, I think, I mean, uh, of course, um, the... What you're describing um, is, uh, as you as you rightly point out, still far away, but not yeah. that far away. So I think that um, we are at uh, at the edge, really, of of a very powerful transformation. And, and this is why I believe that the choices, the regulatory choices that will be made now, 
at a point in time in in which uh, the so to say there's still some some leeway for uh, governing the AI phenomenon uh, will really shape shape the future. Now, having said that, um, I think that um, the, the what is crucial about AI is that because um, it's in the hands of uh, a handful of companies uh, and um, that have, of course, an incisive um, mm. power uh, on the markets and on the society to deploy these, these tools, what we can see is inevitably that uh, there would be developments that might favor um, the fewer over uh, the, the majority of the society. There might be, nonetheless, some positive developments that might, in a way, open up perhaps technology that might open up some possibilities for the majority, for, for the society at large. Um, and we can think, of course, about many developments in, in different fields. So not all is mm-hmm. bleak and dark, but nonetheless, looking at the different um, perspectives and the different fields, it is quite likely that AI will simply um, strengthen and solidify some power dynamics uh, in the market uh, that um, might make, uh, so to say, the vulnerable more vulnerable uh, and uh, we can say the more powerful, even more powerful. And inevitably, AI therefore will... um, is is quite um, prone, so to say, to to foster these imbalances in in the society, and the result of this will be a society that is more um, uh, unequal, that is more, um, so to say, disempowered um, yeah. uh, uh, on a larger scale because of of the um, asymmetries that exist when it comes to AI, the opaqueness mm. uh, of algorithms that really don't allow individuals to engage fully with, with the technology and therefore to have a, a, a say on the technology. Mm. Uh, and you have to think about also the following, that, that AI and algorithms... Um, Take decisions in the uh, in the time frame of a fraction of of seconds, right? So these decisions that are so quick and are so uh, one can say apparently inherently correct because because based on science and data um, have of course uh, uh, disruptive um, effects on on the society, not only from the perspective of how power is exercised, but also in a way. We can say the, the the perception that the public has about yeah. power and science, in the sense that imagine the uh, the application of AI in the justice field. Potentially, we could see uh, AI systems that may adopt decisions uh, about very important human and um, controversial even topics. Um, in the space of um, few few seconds, and this decision that may have a very powerful implications for not only an individual but also society at large, will be based on data and algorithms and decisions uh, that have been, so to say, made more algorithmic, more numerical, um, taking away, so to say, all the debate, all the in a way. Um, participation and and even uh, possibility for input that parties tend to have in um, in litigation. So inevitably, these these procedures that are automated um, will also reshape the perception that the public has when it comes to power. In this case, judicial power, but of course, this applies to all fields. Yeah. And I think also connected to that, and this is something that I think you've, you've written about before, is also the the trust that the public do or don't have in the justice system. Obviously, trust is a big question. And, um, and I think one of the things about the ways in which people think about the law, it's connected with how they feel about the police, how they feel about the government, how they feel about whether or not they're going to have um, a fair hearing. And so if you suddenly get rid of law courts, which is something that you mentioned last time, like, what are some of the risks that you see there if we digitize everything? I think that the, uh, so there, there are different challenges. Um, and, um, 
And I think that the first challenge is the fact that the values of technology are not necessarily aligned with those of the law uh, in this uh, very current uh, stage in which uh, we are operating in the sense that the law is grounded in um, reasoning, is grounded in balancing as well uh, of different values, of different interests, of different rights. Uh, and in itself, this is uh, not a mathematical um, operation. It's about uh, interpretation. It's about also contingencies in the sense that uh, there may be uh, different aspects of different cases that play into the equation, if we will, uh, of uh, the interpretation of the law. And therefore, um, judges in particular can reach a certain outcome based on the different factors uh, of that specific case. Um, so there's an element of individuality, so to say, individual cases that are to be differentiated from other cases and that therefore, in a way, also diverge from um, the, uh, so to say, consolidated case law. So there's an element of exceptionalism in the law as well. But algorithms uh, and AI um, cannot capture this exceptionalism that in many cases is grounded uh, on, um, uh, on, on considerations of equity, on considerations of um, fundamental rights protection, on considerations also of sometimes public interests that, that come into play. So um, in my view, the law and AI are not aligned. We're, we're talking about two very different, um, so to say, sets of ways of, of thinking. Mm. And in my view, there's a clash here and it would be extremely challenging to align the law, to make the law, transform the law into mathematics, into, into data that can be fed into the algorithm. So I think there's a very practical challenge here mm. uh, that will take many years. So uh, beyond the practical challenge, there's also the, the time frame challenge in the sense that it might take years before we can have well-trained algorithms that could be deployed. Mm. So by that time, perhaps the technology might be already outdated. So all the efforts and investment, the, 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 fin the financial investments that we will need to put to create this technology uh, might be well lost uh, at that point in time. Mm. And then, of course, there's the more societal dimension in the sense that, um, again, how do we feel as a society to be uh, subjected to automated decision making, to automated legal advice. Think about AI that could be used, for example, to mm. partially at least automate also the work of lawyers. Um, are we basically paying um, algorithms to give us advice? Or essentially, in a way, we also need perhaps um, to have some human interaction around uh, some very personal and complex problems that might affect our lives and need, of course, to be solved mm. uh, through law uh, and and legal means uh, that um, are necessary to to ensure a certain degree also civilization uh, in our society. Right. Um, so I think that um, we're we're really looking at um, some very um, I would say powerful. Uh, transformations that um, are shaking, in a way, also the foundations of many, many professions, uh, but also society. And uh, the trust, I think, point that you raise is, is very important in the sense that everyone can have different answers to the question, do we trust yeah. more humans or our algorithms? But I think that, um, in a way, um, giving up uh, our um, perhaps our power and our role in society uh, to simply and blindly uh, embrace uh, science, I think it's quite mm. disempowering, right? Uh, now talking from, from a very, so to say, almost psychological perspective, it seems to me that, um, well, we, we're, we're giving up. We don't trust ourselves any longer. I don't know yeah. what, what, what would be your take on that. But um, but it seems to me that, um, but yeah, that, that would be ultimately the result, the the larger implication of, of this transformation that we're giving up on humanity in a way. Yeah, there's something about outsourcing the difficult decisions. And it, it kind of comes, what comes to my mind is what you're saying about 
the legal process, the deliberation that has to happen, the discussion, looking at exceptions, thinking about um, the current times as well and how to respond in the moment with a future in mind and not just retrospectively based on historical data, which is obviously how algorithms make decisions. Like training data is not future data. And yes, of course, there might be a correlation between data that you have now and potential likely paths forward, but it lacks the potential to envision and then take decisions to create futures in which greater flourishing can happen. And some some folks would probably say, well, you can code this in. Yes, great, let's do it. But the problem is that most folks who are working in the domains where the technology is being trained, where it's being developed, we don't have representation. We don't even have representation of physically human systems of law. Like how much variety do you see at judge level or in the House of Lords, that you really don't see as much variety as is present in the wider population. And so one thing that I know that you talk about, and I want to get to language as well, because that's another thing, which is, you know, law is created by putting words on paper and everyone respecting that a specific approach holds sway, that there are certain actions, that when those words are put through a particular system, everyone abides by them. And if they don't, there are consequences. So there's a question there around how language can be um, weaponized potentially by large language models. I mean, that's the heart of what it does. Being that I'm not an AI expert, but like, that seems to me a fairly kind of fundamental question to approach. Um, and the other side I wanted to ask you about algorithmic discrimination. What can we do to mitigate that? Like, So I just wanted to get them out because otherwise my mind will just skit across all these different interesting avenues. But which which one do you want to go for first? The algorithmic discrimination or the language as uh, potential weaponization for AI and what that does to democracy. I think I think we can we can we can um, we can start from uh, language and then move on into discrimination in the sense that they are um, connected as as topics in the sense that um, the, the weaponization of language uh, I think is a very big issue here because um there's no there's no easy solution in the sense that language as we said uh, also for law um is very often interpreted in a context so we can't separate uh the language the words from the context in which they're placed uh and um and in a way this contextual approach to to the law where as i was mentioning earlier on um allows judges, allows legal professionals to put words into a wider uh, environment and therefore also um, create, um, we can say, relations, uh, correlations between words and actions and, and meaning, depending on a set of factors that shape that environment, it's crucial to legal reasoning, right? Mm. And the algorithms... Uh, and in particular, um, large language models, what they do essentially is that, uh, in particular, uh, um, AI tools such as ChatGPT, they predict uh, the likelihood of uh, certain uh, words in a certain yeah. context, as I say. So based on a prompt, uh, ChatGPT predicts what is the likely word uh, to appear uh, after a certain number of words uh, already, so to say, input in the system. So um, it, it's a different um, it, it's a different exercise in the sense that uh, ChatGPT simply is based base bases itself on a, a statistical almost uh, prediction, right? But doesn't look at the actual context in which words and therefore the law um, uh, are placed and. And because of this, so to say, um, uh, prediction element that ChatGPT has, we have also hallucination problems in the sense that ChatGPT drawing from different um, databases, different data sets, has uh, uh, demonstrated that some of the outputs that it produces simply does not match reality because it comes up with, with words and uh and uh, ideas and um, and and concepts that simply um, go beyond even the data that um, has been fed into the algorithm, and this is of course 
uh, absolutely um, worrisome. Um, so I think that in a way, um, it, we, we see already a weaponization of language in the sense that um, language can be used also to, um, in a way, provide uh, fake news, yeah. fake information that if, uh, if of course, is, is, is to spread uh, uh, widely, could uh, could simply um, uh, meddle with with democracy and society, and and this is a, a very powerful form of weaponization of language, and how we could also defeat uh, sometimes um, even democracy, yeah. and this uh, inevitably also links to um, bias in the sense that um, because of the data that is used to um, feed the algorithm. Uh, and AI in general, depending also on the different types of um, of algorithm that uh, can be used, what we see is that um, some of the pre-existing uh, biases that are embedded in the data are simply then uh, enshrined in the algorithm. Mm. Uh, and because of the um, speed at which the algorithm uh, works and also the wide range application of algorithms, uh, what we see is that the, the bias enshrined data could then exponentially be um, uh, also applied in the different fields in which the algorithms um, are used. Hmm. And, um, and this, therefore, this exponential, um, so to say, uh, diffusion of, of bias through algorithmic uh, decision making through automated decision making um, could could uh, simply reinforce certain biases instead of fighting them. So basically, the entire purpose for which many advocate the use of AI, the fact that it can provide more reliable decision, more um, uh, uh, more stable, and also even fairer decisions, is defeated because um, we are simply strengthening some of the biases that exist and that happen, not at a such exponential scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so the entire purpose of basically uh, improving um, decision-making and improving uh, also sometimes society, some AI advocates uh, claim so, um, are then defeated. So it seems to me that um, the weaponization of language and the bias issue really go hand in hand. Mm. And therefore, we need to be very careful, um, in my view, about the uses of AI, in which fields we want AI, in which fields we think that AI could be perhaps helpful, and what kind of safeguards we need. And I think that regulation should really aim at this, at introducing safeguards, at, um, at also making the public aware of the risks of AI, and also providing... Um, uh, in a way, countermeasures to uh, balance the risks of AI. Okay, so there's the regulating piece, and then there's also attributing liability. Maybe let's go there first, because I think that's kind of, it's quite a pernicious and quite a difficult thing to unpack. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when it comes to technological services, whether they employ um, basic algorithms or something more sophisticated, who do we hold or what do we hold accountable for any potential harms that might come, for instance, from systemic discrimination like you just described? Is it the creator of the AI system? Is it going to be, you know, the person who uses them? Is it going to be, let's say you've got all these companies now, and I know some people who run some of these companies who are creating their services and products on a foundation of ChatGPT or OpenAI systems? Like, what level do you attribute? It's like a multi-layer cake. Like, where do you, you know, where do you go to? Yes, it, it is. It is in the sense that um, it is a multi-layer uh, <laughs> uh, cake in the sense that, uh, uh, in the sense that um, in reality, all the different um, components of AI systems lead in a way to the discriminatory outcome. Now, uh, I think that from a regulatory perspective, what um, makes sense is to uh, identify the nest, I can say, of, of the liability uh, in, the, in the hands of those who um, are more easily um, held accountable because of their um, 
power position, we can say, vis-a-vis the adversity of, for example, um, a harmful or discriminatory decision. Mm. So I think that um, the uh, there are good examples coming from the EU where we have a um, uh, liability directive that tries to allocate uh, liability in a uh, an intelligent uh, uh, way and uh, and basically uses it almost a, a product liability approach in the sense that. Uh, there is a presumption of damage that is uh, entailed by uh, the AI um, provider, the AI system provider, uh, that can be rebutted. So in a way, the, the, again, using tools of um, pre-existing legislation, product liability, the EU is trying, so to say, to um, um, provide safeguards, to provide um, guardrails, um, and and also ways in which the public can um, also become more trustworthy towards AI because mm. if the public, if um, consumers, for example, will um, be placed um, at a disadvantage and will receive even um, a, a harmful, um, so to say, uh, decision by AI or um, a harmful, a harm in general from AI, they can, uh, of course, claim damages and uh, they know that someone will be made accountable. Now, whether this is, um, in a way, uh, reflective of the complexity of AI, I think it's um, it's another question. But I think that, um, in a way, what we see here is that the link, the liability, is uh, grounded on the more immediate dynamic between a user and a provider of AI system. And I think that this makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, uh, uh, so to say, an approach that can work better than others because we have this direct correlation between the provider of the AI system and uh, a user. While instead, going back, of course, to the data set and the um the, uh, for example, uh, any pieces and any uh, elements uh, forming the AI system can be more problematic. Imagine a user uh, needing to go back to uh, those who provided the, di- the data set, right? That, that would place an incredible burden to individuals, right? To try to figure out what kind of data was yeah. harmful to them. Then, of course, there might be another layer of litigation between, for example, the AI provider and those who developed the technology, the algorithm, the database. Uh, but this could be solved perhaps at the pre-contractual, uh, perhaps phase where those who want to use then AI system will need to receive guarantees from the developers, from, um, those creating data sets that their products are safe. So I think that it's, it's a chain. Of liability, mm. uh, but I think it, it, it wouldn't be reasonable for the end user to go back uh, and uh, go against all these uh, other entities because it would simply be too cumbersome and also very difficult to enforce. Yes, complete. And who has the resources or the time for that? Like, makes me think it's not quite the same thing, but like cookies, that the law was a good idea. Or the well, the intention was a good idea, but now if you're on a website, anytime you go to a new website. Or if you've got, like I use Ghostry and Adblocker, you've got something that stops you from being tracked. You have to go through the cookie notifications yes. and go through all the settings every single time. Yes. And it's just, like, who does that? Um, so there was something else that was interesting that I thought would be curious to ask you about, which is the idea of regulating not for the technology, but for harms of that technology. Is that something that you can like expand a little on? Because I think that's a really interesting concept that's useful for folks like me who are not familiar with the legal profession to kind of get our heads around? Absolutely. I think that um, the the idea of regulating AI harms um, is, is quite powerful in the sense that it looks at the uh, effects of the technology. Uh, so it has some advantages in the sense that um, it is a quite malleable approach. We're looking at um, harms that materialize in a way and that therefore are taken on or taken forward um, uh, through, for example, uh, complaints with regulators or or litigation. So in a way, uh, this approach 
has the benefit of um, fighting the right battles in the sense that um, when a harm concretizes itself, then uh, we can talk about um, ways to redress it. Uh, so, so there is this um, certainly beneficial aspect of regulating um, uh, harms, but the question of um, harms uh, is uh, also quite complex to grasp in the sense that um, there might be different harms for different categories of society, uh, which uh, is reflective of the fact that different individuals may be placed at different risks vis-a-vis -vis the technology, vis-a-vis -vis AI. So, um, hmm. again, how we concretize the harm, uh, How what, what is a harm? Um, uh, I think that that would be quite difficult to um, put into regulatory terms in the sense that we need a definition of harm that is sufficiently precise, but at the same time um, also encompasses a number of harms that we may not think of already. Uh, so um, the harm approach normally goes into an ex-post regulatory approach, right? We, we first, so to say, allow the introduction of the technology, we see how it works, and then we tackle the harm. So it's a very pragmatic approach, uh, but at the same time has some drawbacks. What do we mean by harm? Are we perhaps cutting out some, some harms that we cannot think of yet? Uh, and in any event, uh, I mean, this puts nonetheless a burden on the end user, right? Because the end user will have to fight the battle, um, both in terms of time and resources. Uh, while instead an ex-ante approach, the product uh, safety approach that has been used by the EU, wants to avoid as much as possible this exposed um, litigation, this exposed conflict that they might emerge once the technology has been in place, and therefore wants to provide a redress um, even before, so to say, the harm materializes. This doesn't mean, nonetheless, that the ex-ante approach won't have some harms concretizing, but it's a more paternalistic approach where, so to say, we want to avoid harms uh, as, as early as possible. It's an early detection uh, strategy. Mm. So again, there are drawbacks uh, and uh, also for the ex-ante approach, nevertheless, because as I said, harms cannot be uh, entirely eradicated. Mm. And uh, at the same time as well, the some of the harms that we can think of at an ex-ante regulatory level might not be the entirety of the harms that we can uh, think of. Mm. I think um, probably a combination of the two is, is necessary in the sense that some of the more fundamental harms should be um, in a way uh, preempted uh, by way of ex-ante regulation, but we also need some ex-post regulatory tools that allow uh, an effective tackling of harms that uh, could not be tackled at an ex-ante level. And I think that in any event, there is no perfect regulation. So I cannot think of a law that is perfect, right? Because of the polycentricity of, of interest, of, of, of values that come into play in society. So there is no regulation that is perfect and that is uh, entirely effective. So also for AI saying that we cannot achieve a perfect regulation so and, and therefore we should not regulate um, is simply um, not reflective of, of reality and, and the law. So um, again, I think that some regulation, even though it's not perfect, uh, can still be more helpful uh, than no regulation where basically we have no safeguards. Yeah. Um, so we should be perhaps less ambitious, yeah. but uh, through uh, a step-by-step -step approach, um, a, a spillover effect, and also progression by stealth, almost we can um, we can perhaps slowly achieve a better regulation. It's interesting because I've been following a lot of the news recently with different companies offering ethical declarations to great fanfare, and but none of this is legally binding and we know from google's early days don't be evil it's like well that didn't really <laughs> you know there's just kind of so there's something really it feels like to me there's something extremely immature about a society that takes profit-driven companies at their word when they say oh yeah we're not going to hurt you but we're going to just 
pay lip service to something when actually the motivations are very clear, which are profit. I don't hold much faith in that sort of, what's the word, like elective mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. process yielding any fruit. But so then let me ask you this. There's two two more things I want to ask before we move to sort of the, this, the closing questions. And I, I realise as we're talking that we focus predominantly on the potential harms and regulation and because also I think that's that's what law is really good at doing, at creating yes. boundaries and setting parameters within which then harm reduction is achieved and people can flourish yes. hopefully more freely. That's the kind of the world that I would like to live in without being too constrictive. And so, and again, that's a balance. But so I wonder, what are some of your hopes around what AI can bring to not just law, but society as a whole? I think that, as I said, um, any form of progress um, allows some wins and tells also some losses in the sense that um, inevitably, um, I think, uh, giving now a very banal example, but I think something that um, is quite um, representative of, of the historical moment we're living. Think about cars, right? Or um, any other um, uh, technology in that field. Inevitably, cars have facilitated uh, uh, transportation and have made uh, connections much easier, have made um, uh, individuals more um, independent and also able to uh, travel and therefore also reach uh, further distances. Um, but at the same time, one can say that, well, cars have also um, fostered a, a way of living that is um, not necessarily as healthy because it has limited, for example, uh, the physical, the time that individuals uh, were spending engaging into physical activities, walking, uh, spending time in the nature, um, and um, and also doing activities that are essentially also beneficial for, for uh, human beings, right? Mm. But at the same time, uh, again, of course, a balance can be formed where we also realize that cars may be also a source of pollution, a source of um, uh, damage for the environment. Uh, and therefore, we're rebalancing perhaps the how much uh, uh, we should use cars, right? Uh, there's policies now uh, across the UK, across uh, many jurisdictions where we see that there's a fight against using cars as much as possible because of the damage that it has on lifestyle, but also the environment. So I think, so this is a very, I would say, immediate example of how technology entails some gains, but also some losses. And um, as a society, through law, through regulation, we're trying to rebalance the gains and the losses. So uh, when thinking about AI, what I hope is that um, we, um, as a society, become more aware of the risks of AI. And also, above all, that um, we don't lose faith uh, in humans and we try also mm. to um, see this, this almost uh, existential societal crisis that we are undergoing, um, faced with the power of AI. Uh, I really hope that we can... Um, in a way, rebalance, so to say, uh, the gains and the losses that we can have as a society um, uh, uh, as a as a whole. And what do I mean by that? That perhaps we we uh, take this um, this um, technological development also to recalibrate the importance of environment, the importance of mm. um, some values that um, um, perhaps are becoming, I think also more more important uh, for every individual, Um, but they should become also more important for the society at large in the sense that we're talking about fairness, we're talking about non-discrimination, we're talking about uh, equality, we're talking about also the importance that art and uh, creativity can have in society. I was talking with some Mm -hmm. Um, um, friends and colleagues and but also um, uh, members of the artistic community were absolutely uh, terrified um, of the developments of AI and I think that the the terror and the 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 scare that AI is entailing for artists is is something that should talk to us Mm. shouldn't we protect art shouldn't we protect the ability 
to to create ideas, the, the ability to uh, generate powerful visual images that uh, can shake in a way our consciousness, our uh, our ways of thinking, right? I, I, and as an art had an important role in our society, and shouldn't we perhaps also not lose sight of of this of um, these values that perhaps are not necessarily driven by by money and, and market, yeah. but they are also so important for our psyche, for our um, uh, for our world, and for the beauty in a way that has allowed um, the, the flourishing of our society. Right. So um, I think that yeah, I, I hope that the, the, from the crisis, um, from the chaos. Uh, we will come out as a, a more um, balanced society. Uh, that 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 is my hope. From so to say, a, a very one can say almost philosophical um, <laughs> point of view. Uh, but then talking about more tangible um, uh, matters, I think that I hope that again um, we uh, we as a society uh, will manage to 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 embed AI in a way that. Um, uh, can foster some um, uh, some good uh, we can say uh, in the society some good objectives some good goals and can can also help us fight there for good causes that that would be my um, my hope I love that and to complete that because I'm thinking about and obviously this is this is your domain so are there any laws or developments in the world of law in Europe or beyond that are giving you a sense of people kind of having, get, being on the right track. So whether it's like a new AI law that's coming into play or, you know, is there anything that you've kind of got on the horizon that you can point people towards and say, look here, this is good? <laughs> yes, I I think, I think, I think so. Looking at uh, the regulatory space, um, we see a variety of approaches, right? In the sense that um, in the EU, we have a proposal for a new AI act <laughs> that uh, is um, seriously thinking about guardrails, is seriously thinking about protections for individuals. Um, not all in that proposal, I think, is uh, workable and would actually achieve the intended results, but I think it's it's a good starting point. Uh, the essence of the framework is that AI basically is a tool, is a product, and in particular systems that are classified as high-risk uh, should respect some safety product requirements, so to say. Uh, and therefore, this will put a burden on producers to make sure that they produce um, safe AI and trustworthy AI. Hmm. Whether this will become a ticking box exercise, um, there's certainly a risk. But nonetheless, um, I think it's a starting point, it's a step towards trying to think about AI that can work for humans and not vice versa. Mm. It will foster a human-centric approach to, um, to AI, which I think is a, is a good development, thinking about the risks of AI and, and also the anxiety that AI basically is causing to, to, to um, individuals. There were declarations by individuals who have contributed towards the development of AI that, that basically this technology could end humanity. I don't think that is... Um, necessary accurate. Um, there are some risks, of course, and we shouldn't underscore them. But on the other hand, um, I think that um, this might be too far-fetched. <laughs> so the, again, the truth is in the middle. Um, and I think that the EU uh, regulatory approach in this field is taking the risks of AI more seriously. But we see also that um, some concerns have emerged in the US where the, uh, of course, Silicon Valley um, has, has flourished and has helped as well also the development of this very technology. And what I found extremely interesting is that um, in the US, um, there is some discussion around the risks of AI that have concretized into a proposal, uh, the AI Bill of Rights. Hmm. Uh, this is a non-binding document. But nonetheless, it has a quite powerful symbolic value in the sense that the government is making clear that AI, AI has some risks and therefore uh, they should be made, uh, so to say, expressed. They should be expressed, they should be uh, articulated uh, into an AI Bill of Rights. And what I thought was also very interesting in this document that was adopted in late 2022 is that 
one of the core principles is that there should be a human alternative to AI decision-making, basically, which hints to the fact that, well, AI is not necessarily always the best option. Yeah. So again, this, this document is non-binding. Uh, it explicitly says that it does not create any rights, uh, uh, so and any obligation. So again, it, it, the, the very purpose of having this document is perhaps defeated, but it's quite symbolic in the sense that a government a jurisdiction like the United States of America, where AI is so um, uh, important and also crucial in the market, is signaling that, well, there are some risks and uh, we should uh, we should at least be mindful of those. Mm. Um, and again, it's a more it's a more cautious approach uh, that um, I think might lead to interesting regulatory developments. Um, while instead in the UK, we see that the core value is innovation. Mm -hmm. um, there are some principles uh, that have been um, proposed through a UK white paper that basically will rely on existing regulators for their enforcement. So the regulators, for example, for the quality legislation, for the uh, communication sector, for the data protection sector, and so on, all these regulators will be tasked with the duty to enforce these AI um, principles, so to say. But uh, there are some very practical questions. Uh, know-how. Do these regulators have the know-how to tackle AI challenges? Uh, and also the um, uh, staff resources. Do they have sufficient staff resources to deal with all the different applications of AI that are emerging? Uh, and again, it seems that the entire framework is really fostering innovation and it's losing a bit sight of the broader societal, uh, societal issues that AI uh, brings with it. So um, there is some discussion, which I think it's good. But I think, again, um, how we tackle these risks might have very um, powerful implications mm -hmm. on society. And I would wish to see uh, uh, hardcore laws adopted in this field that might not be yeah. the ultimate solution, but that would provide some safeguards. So to close this past the podcast, then <laughs> with all of the with all of the things that you have to think about and the scope and scale of it, how do you orient yourself towards life and beauty when things get tough? <laughs> oh well, um, I think that um, it's. Um, <laughs> It's so interesting because uh, in reality, when we think about these developments, um, it's inevitable also to, to feel quite disempowered because um, mm. the uh, as individuals, we're not necessarily um, able to shape directly these developments, right? Yeah. So how do we stay grounded? How do we, so to say, cope with these uh, very fast uh, moving um, uh, changes, right? I think that uh, uh, these sudden changes can have some traumatic aspects to them in the sense that mm. we were used to think that uh, we had some points of references uh, that our job would have stayed there. But then, of course, technology and AI come in uh, the picture and, and of course, everything is, is becomes shaky and, and uncertain. So I think that uh, you rightly said that how do we, so to say, um, look for for something that could make us feel, um, so to say, better, that could help us tackle these, um, uh, these, these challenges. And I agree with you that, that, that beauty, so to say, and, and, and peace and peace of mind inevitably could, um, are something that could help us, um, uh, to better tackle these challenges. And I think that, um, um, one, one way to do this is that, uh, first of all, not to feel disempowered, right? The, the fact that in reality, um, we're not as disempowered as we think in the sense that by talking to others, by, by engaging with this topic and, uh, um, and also simply spreading, um, awareness, spreading, um, ideas, um, can have more powerful effects than we could think. Um, because this can create a social movement, a social movement where basically there is a response, there is a reaction to this innovation-driven approach to AI. Mm -hmm. So I think that 
not feeling completely disempowered uh, is step one, I would say. Uh, and and reading and um, making our, ourselves aware, right? I think that awareness is always the first step. And then uh, I think that, again, everyone has different ways of coping with, with, with anxiety and stress. Um, mm. and, uh, and I think that uh, we should perhaps cut ourselves some slack and say that, well, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's pretty, um, hardcore, which might mean that, uh, we need to reevaluate some, some aspects of our job, of, of skills, perhaps that we want to develop, of, mm. of, um, projects that we want to undertake that, um, uh, that might, uh, so to say, contribute towards, um, so to say, empowering us and also make us feel useful and, and also having a certain role, um, to play. Mm. And, uh, and yes, I think that, um, trying to shape the debate, trying to, um, uh, not lose faith as well is, is very, very important. Um, mm. because we've, we've done as a society, quite incredible things, uh, quite beautiful things sometimes, not all of them, of course, mm. but there is so much uh, out there that as humans, we were able to to produce that is quite astonishing. So um, thinking that, um, that, you know, we managed to have some, some good impact, and not all of it, but good impact on, on, on livelihoods and, and humans, I think it's, it's quite nice thought, right? Uh, yeah. We, we did some good things too, right? We, we have, <laughs> we have destroyed the, the planet in some parts of the world, but, but, you know, we're becoming aware of this and we can do something. Um, and we should do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and yeah, I think that not losing faith is, is key, perhaps. Yeah. I love that. So, um, briefly then, if people want to find out more about your work, what are the best places to find you? Like, LinkedIn. What websites do you want to direct people towards? I, I I'm active on uh, <laughs> Twitter. I'm active on LinkedIn. Um, uh, and and yes, and you can um, find uh, my work, my publications, my research on on AI, uh, and um, especially um, fundamental rights. Um, um, yes, on on these platforms. Um, and, uh, and yes, of course, uh, I'm always, uh, available also to, to chat and, um, to, to discuss, uh, as much as I can, um, within the constraints of my academic work and my research <laughs> and my teaching and my conferences, uh, because, because, um, and my traveling for conferences sometimes, which I try to reduce, but because of environmental concerns, but, but yeah, I, I, um, I genuinely um, care about these issues. So uh, as much as I can, I, I try to uh, to talk to people, to um, to, to, to spread <laughs> ideas <laughs> in this field. Well, and thank you very much for talking with me. Thanks, and... thanks for having me, Natalie. That, that was brilliant. Thank you for listening to Natalie Nahai in Conversation. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pop over to iTunes, Spotify or wherever it is that you listen and give a rating and a review. It really does mean the world to me to read your support and it keeps me going to create more seasons, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour hours of work creating, recording and producing each episode. To find out more about my work and how to get involved in my projects, You can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahai.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahai.com forward slash resources, and you can follow me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing, thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.